time to hit the brakes. Welcome to Swerve South. Welcome to a special pop-up edition of Swerve South. I'm Teresa Starkey, the Associate Director of the Sarah Isom Center for Women and Gender Studies. This episode is in conjunction with SarahFest, the Center's annual arts and music festival. So excited to have Megan Abbott here with me to talk about popular culture, coming-of-age narratives, and the movie The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. An Edgar Award-winning writer, Megan Abbott has authored 10 novels and was a writer on the HBO series The Deuce. And if that isn't enough, she is the showrunner for Dear Me on USA Network that was adapted from her novel by the same name. You can catch season one now on Hulu. Her most recent novel, The Turnout, will be out in June 2021. It has already been picked up for adaptation by the Canadian entertainment company E1. So let's get this conversation going. So, hey, Megan Abbott, um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being a part of this episode and for participating in Swerve South and doing this special pop-up that is a Serafest edition. And Serafest is our arts and music festival that we host every year. And I feel like we're bringing it around full circle because you were part of Serafest the first time we brought this festival into fruition. So thanks for being here, Megan. Oh, I'm so happy to. That was such a great time. And oh my gosh, it seems like it was just yesterday, um, but such a joyous occasion um, and so memorable. So I'm so glad um, keeping all this spirit alive, especially now in our, in our complicated times. Yeah, we are keeping the spirit alive in our complicated times. And we're trying to figure out, right, new mediums and new ways to sort of make this music festival happen. And so the podcast is a way for us to do that. So yeah, thanks so much. And uh, always a pleasure. Always excited to get a chance to talk to you because there's always so many things we can discuss about popular culture. And today I want to go ahead and pose this question because this is something that we've spoken about in the past quite often. And um, our, I, I think it's safe to say that these that is our obsessions, this idea of the coming of age narrative, right, as a genre or form, and what it is, why do we, right, sort of gravitate towards it? I have my, right, own sort of pathways. So I want to go ahead and say, Megan, come on, tell me, what is it about this coming of age, right, that um, appeals to you? Yeah, I've thought about it so much because uh, it does loom most largest for me. Uh, even, even you know, things that I don't, things I write that I don't think are coming of age stories ultimately turn out to be, no matter what the age of the protagonist. But I think there's something particularly, in large part, female coming of age stories were so in my upbringing. I know we're around the same age, Teresa. We're so. Um, so much harder to find so when you did find them they were so much more special um because it just felt like girls uh were not supposed to sort of talk about <laughs> talk about adolescence or all those big moments or if they were it was supposed to only be in the realm of dating and and the straight world and romance and not in terms of anything else but it's this time where as a young woman you really figure out who you are who you want to be it's 
all the big questions of life, all your first experiences. Um, it's all this sort of precipice. And I just think we, like it hangs around us the rest of our lives for better or for worse because of that. No, I think, I think you're right. I think there's something interested, interesting in that idea that it does sort of hang around us, right? At least speaking for myself, I feel like I'm always still sort of enveloped by a particular moment in some way, even though the distance, right, is past. It's, um, yeah, it's always, always, it haunts, I guess that's a way to sort of think about it. And when you were talking about coming of age at a particular moment, I think about what it means to come of age and look at magazines such as Seventeen, or even to look at um, or read paperback books, what was it, like Sweet Valley High, these types of things. And then, and then there are these other right, narratives of girlhood that perhaps complicate, right, these spaces or these emotions for us. Um, And I'm going to digress for a moment because this kind of taps into um, this idea of finding things when you're young. And uh, I had a conversation with Jamie Harker, the director, not too long ago, and I was thinking about this 1970s moment, right, of coming up in terms of girlhood. And one of the things I went back and I looked at, Megan, as I went back and I looked at the opening credits for, say, Charlie's Angels, and I even went back and was looking at the opening credits for um, Nancy Drew. And one of the things that caught my attention with both of those is that in each one, it had all of these women doing things that they were in moments of action, or they were in new professions, or they were breaking these kind of boundaries where with the Nancy Drew, maybe it was the season two opener. You have all of these different panels that show her in these action moments. She's flying a plane. Um, She's doing um, like racing a car, right? And she's doing all of these things that are sort of so unexpected, or even if it's with Charlie's Angels in the opening credit, right? You are doing judo, or suddenly you're no longer satisfied with being and having that desk job, but you're doing something else. And as a young girl, right, seeing those kind of things also sort of complicated, right, girlhood for me, or my idea, I should even say what it means to go from girlhood to womanhood, and then enmeshed in that, though, Megan, as I'm watching all of these things, I'm reading other things that are kind of subversive, like V.C. Andrews and then uh, Judy Bloom. So I guess what I'm saying is that my psyche, man, is really punctuated <laughs> by, <laughs> by, by all of these different elements of sort of popular culture. But for me, I definitely see them sort of intrinsically connected, right, to coming of age at a, at a particular moment for me. So... Yes, no, there's so many contradictions when you put it together like that in that in that era, in every era, I'm sure. But I think particularly the 70s is such a complicated moment. It's the rise of feminism and the attempt to sort of somehow represent that in popular culture, in TV and film, but often in this sort of deranged way, um, uh, you know, and sort of with women still not in the seat of power at any of these places either, being the ones to tell the stories, but often, often in the, in books or, or magazines, you, you would get those, um, wilder voices like VC Andrews, which is of course is the first person I thought of when you mentioned the stuff that 
imprints on your brain because <laughs> the flowers in the attic was something like I literally remember the first time I saw that book at my best friend's house. Um, her older sister had it and looking at that cover, the famous keyhole cover with these children trapped in the attic of their home. And, you know, you read the book as an adult and it's it's really too racy almost for me now <laughs> you can in terms of the the wonderful depravity and uh oddness and and quote unquote perversity of it and i think that's one of the ways as a young person you do deal with all these contradictions as you actually dive into them no that's right and so exactly the way that we dive into these sort of spaces or these moments or even with the bc andrews it also becomes this sort of relic or sort of totem that you pass amongst your friends right that suddenly that paperback book has this worn spine right you know because it, because it, it's also it's it's delving into this um taboo right sort of world uh and as you say, going back now and perhaps reading it, maybe it does cause me to have the vapors. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe now I'm embracing, am I embracing like my, my, my Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? A puritanical <laughs> past. <laughs> Oh my God, it's so true. It's the true. It's it is deeply. So I can't believe someone hasn't written about it in the American Gothic tradition, but that's where it belongs. Um, <laughs> and you know that. Yeah, I just think it's very telling those books were and are obscenely, like, wonderfully popular. Like, you know, remains those books remain global bestsellers, which I think speaks to that there's something in them that young girls and young women really connect to. And then the women they become and the older, you know, that remains there. It's a part of us. You, you know, we were talking, you said haunting, and that's the best word. So the coming of age, you know, uh, haunts you um, in all the days thereafter. <laughs> so I'm going to ask this question now, thinking about uh, thinking about things that we've seen or things that we've watched, and and as I said, you introduced me to the prime of Miss Jean Brody with Maggie Smith, and as I said, I will forever at this moment, Megan Abbott, be eternally grateful for you because, as I said, I felt as there had been an absence, and now suddenly, right, um, a void has been filled. So tell me. Uh, how you discovered this film. And I think one of the things, if you don't mind, go ahead and sort of preface it, right? Set the world up for us. But first, like sort of your discovery and then what the world of this novel is. And I believe it was first a novel, then adapted to the play and then went to the screen. So... Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, a wonderfully adapted as a play and for the screen by Jay Preston Allen, a, well, one of the most successful female screenwriters of the 60s and 70s, which is um, quite incredible because it's very rare then for not that many female screenwriters in that era. But I, I first discovered as a kid, um, you know, I would watch old, old movies all the time. And I think my mom really liked this one and we watched it. And so I knew it as probably saw it at some point age 12 13 14 probably had you know understood many parts of it and not all parts of it but essentially it's this it's set in the 1930s in edinburgh in a girls school and um it's, it's focuses on particularly four students who sort of fall under the thrall of a very charismatic teacher played in the movie by maggie smith who 
um, sort of takes them under her wing and uh, sort of wants to teach them the great lessons of life and is also rather enthralled with her own sort of reputation and mystique as someone who who lost uh, a lover in the last war and uh, wants to live a, a romantic and glamorous life and um, slowly through the course of the movie as in the book and play um, you know the the pri- the primary girl the girl we're most attached to Sandy slowly starts to uncover starts to see her in different light as she grows older and and certain events unfold and it's in that great tradition of mentor protege which is sort of like a subset of coming of age right and to me it's sort of the it's sort of the perfect version of that story i'm so glad you liked it yeah as i said and as you said there's just megan there's so much there and it is the idea of finding one's mentor right or being the protege and suddenly the 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 complicated relationship that you can have and it's also i would think one of the things i kept thinking was it's about these kind of power relationships right that individuals right have um and her influence right over these these young girls and particularly how Sandy is the one that comes to sort of question that um, and how she sees her sort of moving right through her community, whether it's the hallways of the school or even the way that she's sort of moving in her relationship with the young women, young girls around her. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, one of the things for me is like this idea of like the power of relationships. And there's sort of a struggle, I would say, between Sandy and uh, Miss Brody. Yes, yes. And that's sort of, in some ways, I think when I first saw it as a kid, you're not seeing that coming because you're used to certain like teacher and student stories and they're like the inspiring teacher um, and, you know, sort of stuff like, um, you know, what's a, what's the Sydney Poitier, a to serve with love or, you know, it's good to be some great uh, story and teacher uplift and, and it, it, it turns pretty quickly into something um, more complex and becomes an essential sort of battle of wills between these these women and you know and Sandy who you know is never really the traditional protagonist in, in a teacher student story either she's very smart she's sort of in some ways savvy to certain elements in Miss Brody from the start and but is but is uh, in some ways you know more deeply connected to her than any of the other young girls but one of the things that I wanted to see if you have an experience with this Teresa it also the first third when it's just sort of falling under the spell of Miss Jean Brody who is such a wonderful speaker and breaks the rules in the best way uh, you know yes Megan, that's right and I would say you're exactly so right there is that and, and and nicely put right there's the turning point right there are these moments but in that beginning she is the enchantress right we yeah. see her in the classroom and she, I, she takes the pride in knowing and she reminds right the other faculty or the headmistress that uh, she's very aware that she is teaching in a conservative school, right? But right. At, but as she's as she's under the mantle of this conservative right institution, it will not right. It will not hold her right or constrain her because she is she is and has right devoted herself to her young women 
in her yeah. prime, which becomes right questionable <laughs> what, what what her prime is and is she perhaps still in it? But yes, and we and there's that great moment, Megan, at the beginning where she's showing these slides and she's reminiscing. She has different moments where she talks about her experience in Rome, or she's talking about her deceased right lover, and um, and you see the students not quite sure what they're processing because somehow it's drifted from Flanders Field and history right to this broader sort of romance, and the young student is enraptured and weeping but not quite sure why right they're moved, and so so there's all these ways in which yes she's weaving these narratives she's drifting away perhaps from the curriculum because she is instilling in them something she feels right broader right a love for beauty or truth right so yeah no excellent (laughs) yes and that is i mean this for me as a kid growing up in the midwest in a sort of very conservative um reaganite suburb you know this all i wanted was someone like a teacher at school to talk to me about the great poets and to open up you know to see me as a true intellectual that i could be and so the, like that's so tantalizing when someone comes to your sort of very the place where you feel like you don't belong right that's yeah. more conservative more constrained people aren't interested in the things you're interested in you feel like the weirdo and then you have a teacher a, an authority figure who sees you sees this <sighs> in you and is going to open those doors Oh, and Megan, nicely put, by the way, and that's one of the things I'm always interested in sort of teasing out in different sort of narratives or these ideas of being seen, right? What does it mean to actually fall under, right, someone's field of vision or, or to be discovered? And as you say, be made or feel special, Um that 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 in itself is sort of this transformative thing as as, as a young girl. And I think and remind me that for each of these girls in in an incoming class, she picks them right, but she also has certain ideas of how she she sort of sees them um, emerging from her tutelage, right? So that from her guidance, they will evolve, right, into a certain type of of, of woman. And there's Sandy, of course, which she believe, I believe she says, oh, you you are the dependable one, right? You would make the perfect spy. You would be the perfect double agent. Um, and then there's Monica, and there's Jenny, and then there's Mary McGregor, right? <laughs> that that Sandy says later in the movie, right? I think you only say her whole name because you can't remember who she is. But anyway, I, I, I jump forward. So but this 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 idea that she is also like taking these girls and sort of imagining, right, these kind of identities for them. That's right. And it's sort of in some ways her fatal mistake that ah. she makes with Sandy, which is sort of again tipped towards what's coming because you know, you so want to be seen and you're seen by this teacher that you then come to, you know, valorize and that teacher has such a limited view of you. (laughs) Jenny is the great beauty and Monica will be a great actress and, and, you know, but Sandy's dependable. (laughs) That's exactly so. And that's such an interesting moment. You can kind of see this registering right on Sandy's face when she's talking about, right, how Ginny will be um, the muse for artists, right? And we also need to, I believe it's important to have this sort of caveat, right? She sort of sees herself as sort of um, grooming Ginny, right, as, into this sort of coquette role, right, to to replace her, right? And, 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 
<laughs> yeah, it really, um, it's sort of this sort of weirdness, the perversity of it, that, that you know, the very conservative culture, right? Very, yeah. certainly, but the, the art teacher with whom Miss Brody has had this affair and who um, is very attached to her, but is married with many children, um, she wants, she cannot be with him because he will, remains married and with all these children. So she wants to just sort of prop up Jenny <laughs> in, in place. And it's like somehow as as a 12 year old watching this i guess that seemed perfectly normal <laughs> <laughs> no when i'm watching that and thinking i was like I'm, I'm like oh my goodness and then the other thing megan and this is just an aside but which is fascinating and i think this is something that that you'll appreciate an observation is that when we're thinking about her former lover right that she's grooming jenny right to be her mm-hmm. substitute it's interesting that we that uh Sandy discovers that every single painting that he's doing is actually just, right, another (laughs) imagining of Mrs. Brody, right? Even when he starts painting Sandy's, right? It's just another, right, uh, going over. And it's on his family, like his family is said, the portrait of the family is really just Miss Brody over again. But there's that idea of the portrait and how it works in this film. It's it's so much about being looked at and being perceived. I think you're right. And this, like the two mistakes Miss Brody makes with Sandy are, you know, she doesn't have much control over the second one. But the first is sort of branding her uh, to the dependable one, and then the second is that um, you know Miss Brody's lover, whom whom Sandy becomes involved with ultimately, um, can't can't let go of Miss Brody either. So. You know, even her attempt to sort of betray her the first time doesn't work because the sort of the, her hold is so strong, her charismatic hold. Um, it's another. It's another interesting thing to compare her to, to sort of a, a small cult leader, right? because she sees her weaknesses. Mary McGregor is the student that she targets the, the most quickly, I think because Mary McGregor is sort of unformed and so she she seizes on that and she knows that she can truly um, make Mary McGregor do whatever she wants um, so I think that sort of mesmeric quality is there too so it's quite a battle between these two women it is it is um, and it's interesting right the the power play that plays out and and that Miss Brody isn't right aware of it until as the the film sort of unfolds and so um yeah let's talk about sort of feeling like the portrayal because I also feel like there's that moment where where Sandy has had enough right where she draws that line in the sand with uh Mrs. Brody and I think that I think it's safe to say and you might agree that it's also linked right to Mary McGregor perhaps because there's that realization that she was so malleable right that she actually goes what to fight um, for Mussolini? Is that right? <laughs> she's she's gonna go. She's gonna go devote her life right to a a, a worthy cause, right? which is something that Mrs. Brody Wright sees as sort of romantic, sacrificing oneself, and and one could say that she has her perspectives politically maybe askew and doesn't quite understand. But I think that that becomes the the uh, the line for Sandy, right? It's what what happens with Mary McGregor. 
I think it's what she decides is the line. It's the um, line. Yeah, because I, but I think actually she's just looking for something that's, um, on, she's already wants to betray her at that point for her personal reason. Yeah. This is my interpretation, by the way. <laughs> but um, because because Miss Brody's fascism is clear from the start. Once you've seen it once, you go back and you see her, she is sort of glamorizes Mussolini and Franco early on, and it's part of her sort of it's it's apolitical, but it becomes political because it's a political time. You know, yeah. I was thinking about a lot rewatching it in our current moment and the sort of dangerousness of like you know not being interested in facts which miss brody is not <laughs> as a teacher she's not someone who will be bothered by it um, because she has this sweeping view um, of the world that's sort of steeped in beauty and magic and her sacrifice in her, her spinsterhood and and um and the lost love and and that that you know that there's a dangerousness to that um and she's you know essentially had been sort of spouting fascism and his has inspired Mary McGregor on this foolish mission so i think i think you know that's the sort of you know, true danger that's been lurking in her. Um, but I, I love the, the complicated way that it unfolds in the story because it gives Sandy this real reason to get her in trouble with the school um, because, because of these political views. No, and that's interesting, right? It gives, well, it gives her sort of the tool. And I have to say that there's another um, interesting sort of element too, is that Sandy um approaches right the headmistress miss Mackey, who miss Mackey all along has also right been gunning uh, to have mrs brody removed and it's a tricky process because miss brody has her tenure so there's that there's there's not only the battle of will but if we're thinking about even between right the student and teacher but even within the administration right and the and the school itself and obviously the headmistress has her own idea, right? How the classroom should be should be run, and that Mrs. Brody is in her colorful, right, plaid outfits, right, a sort of uh, subversive element, right, to these young girls, and is trying to angle, right, to find that that reason, right? What will be the thing that sticks? Yeah, yeah. She's waiting, and she's waiting, and she's so magnificently. Uh, played by Celia Johnson from Brief Encounter, uh, uh, which I didn't realize till I watched it this time. One of the great British actresses um, playing a sort of seminal, um, you know, British love story from decades before. So there's something about, you know, it's so strange watching it now. I had such different responses to everybody than when I watched it as a 12 mm -hmm. or 13-year-old. Um, at that time, I was all in on Sandy. And, and this time, I, you know, <laughs> even Mrs. Mackay is sort of, seems more um, complicated and interesting to me and has, you know, she's, she's, um, she's actually not bothered really by the obvious things that people could be mis bothered by with Miss Brody, like that she's, you know, taking her students on her romantic weekends. <laughs> and, you know, she's fairly, she's fairly liberal. I mean, given that she also has this tenure situation, but she 
does see that the power that Miss Brody has over her students can can lead to trouble, and I think that's what she's on the watch for, and that's yeah. when she and Sandy um, have their moment. That that's going to be the the Judas kiss. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is the Judas sort of kiss. And, and so this leads me to think, Megan, because as I said, this movie is just, it's, it's amazing. And I can only imagine, as you said, when you were watching it younger and then coming back to it and all the different things you're taking out of it. I think one of the moments that's resonated for me is at the very end when she finally discovers, right, that Sandy is, right, yeah. the one who has betrayed her. And there's that great moment when she's actually um, come out of conversation, right, in conflict with the headmistress, and she's back in the classroom. And the classroom's dark, and she closes the door, and she has her head, right, pressed up against the doorway. And then we realize that she's not alone in that moment. She's not alone in that space anymore. That that Sandy's been there, right, sort of almost waiting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, I mean it's sort of. I mean it's so it's so operatic at that point, and you know the the movie is very funny for most of the movie, and and you know it's sort of darkly comedic, but it becomes almost operatic there mm-hmm. because, um, and that's why this time I admit I had a different. I mean I always enjoyed Maggie Smith so wonderful as as Jean Brody, but um, I always enjoyed her. But this time, despite her fascist tendencies, I did feel so sorry for Miss Brody at the end and I don't know if it, uh, what it is about you know having more life experience but in in some ways you see how small her life was and that this was all she had and and you know her her, her fascist leanings were really just an inability to really understand as as her former lover says politics at all or um and so i i and just seeing how sandy had her from every angle (laughs) made me feel more sorry for miss brody which it's to me is a sign of a great piece of art that Mm -hmm. your feelings about the characters can keep changing it's like great gatsby in that way way right when you read it when you're 15 versus when you're 30 versus when you're 45 yeah, it's and you're right. It's very, it's very, it's very tragic in the sense that when you're talking, and you just said something interesting. It's this idea that suddenly the realization that this is all she has, right, or this is her world, or all along it's been sort of ways of seeing how she is seeing these young girls, or how she's imagining them, right, and suddenly the disillusionment that comes with that. But then perhaps what it means to have so have someone such as Sandy, right, your own student, to turn the gaze onto you, right, and and expose you in this way that makes you so, right, you feel her vulnerability there. Right. It's, it's yeah. suddenly it's perhaps she had her own dark night of the soul in that moment. Right? I think so. And it is you, it, something you said earlier is making me think back now on this because you, you're right. She says you're dependable and you would be a good spy. And that actually is kind of a compliment. I would have taken it as a compliment at that age. But it also shows she's right. Like she does on some level understand that Sandy is dangerous to her. Right, a spy is someone who's collecting information and who will betray you. And in some ways, even early on, when she says that, she perhaps knows and sees it's coming, but can't quite face it. And then until she has to. Oh dear, Sandy, it will be you who undoes me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Amazing. 
okay, at the very end, though, I do have to say we have to talk about this because suddenly, you know, after that moment, after being exposed and after recognizing, right, that perhaps one's world is crumbling around you, she runs, right, after Sandy, and she's standing there um, at the railing looking down at her, at Sandy as she's walking away, and she yells, and you're going to have to say, what does she say? What does she say to Sandy? She says, assassin. so deeply this time like that's it is so operatic right i mean that's over the top for a movie that mostly plays in the in the tradition of scottish humor you know it's wild and wonderful i mean did you gasp when you heard that yes 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 and she says it assassin assassin and it's and it's true and it's so it's so emotional you know pointing and and looking at her and ah yeah, it uh, it did. It tore it, it tore me up. <laughs> I was so yeah. surprised. I was so surprised to have that. I don't know. Here's the thing: have that uttered out, Megan, like that in the hallways of a girls' school. <laughs> so perfect. I can think of no better place. I can't. I can't think of a place where more assassinations have occurred than in any girls' school. <laughs> It's like you're bringing what's hidden right to the surface and exposing it. That's right. That's right. Oh my! And then I suppose there's this sort of, and I don't, I didn't even catch this when I saw it when I was young, and I don't know if you saw the sort of flash forward where you have a see that Sandy, for Sandy's future. Did you did you notice this? It's the quickest of flashes, but it's in the book, which is that Sandy becomes a nun. What? No, Megan. Yeah. Yes, I don't know how anyone who hadn't read the book could get this because it's almost like the director, or you know, or some or someone sort of backed out, didn't want to dwell on it. But Sandy is in the book very, very affected by her betrayal, and and not that it was wrong. She's just torn. She becomes. She enters the um um the nun a nunnery. <laughs> so, wow. Which, yeah, I'm kind of glad they took mostly took that out. That just that flash in the movie because um, it just seems to complicate. I mean, maybe it's just another turn of the screw, and you think, oh, geez, you know, this is um, it becomes so, uh, you know, this has torn them both apart in some ways. No, um, it's, it's... I think classic, classic mentor protege betrayal story in that. Way. Oh no, exactly so, Megan. Yes, it has torn them and transformed them, right? It has undone them both, right? And and, and in, in these different complicated ways. And I think it's safe to say, circling back to around, around, it will be the thing they carry with them, <laughs> right? From that moment, from these mo- from that moment, right? So for, for thinking about Sandy, right? It's this moment of girlhood that perhaps, right, will haunt her. And obviously it's implied that it does in some way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely has driven her to the nunnery. (laughs) (laughs) I must remove myself from the world. Yes, poor poor Mary McGregor, right? And the tragedy on the train as she makes her way to fight, right? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Wow. So let me ask this, um, Megan, as we're thinking about this, and like I said, I'm so glad that you 
turned me on to this movie. Are, are there other things that you've been reading or watching lately, right, um, that tie into this sort of, you know, coming of age that you would, you've recommended this for me, right, and I'm so grateful and thankful. Is there anything on the horizon right now um, well, that you could point yeah. me to or others, perhaps? Yeah, well, I was thinking of, um, uh, there's, I was lately rewatched another one that had a big impact on me. I don't think I saw the movie till later, but the short story certainly, but the movie is called Smooth Talk, and the short story is by Joyce Carol Oates, Where Are You Going, Where Have I Been, which is a, so it's a famous, um, Famously dark short story about a, a young girl, a bored young teenager um, who, who falls in the path of um, a stranger. And it's a wonderful movie with Laura Dern. Have you seen it, Teresa? No, I haven't. I haven't. And again, so this is something else, right, you're pulling out for me that is not, right, in my uh, in my folder. Yeah, well, I was thinking of it because I've been reading a lot of novels in the last few years have come out focusing on sort of trying to to, to take a Lolita story from the female point of view and, you know, they sort of turn everything around. There's been some good ones and some bad ones, but um, those stories that continue to sort of dominate the culture of the predatory older man and the, and the young woman and... Um, seems to be much like the the mentor protege seem to be endless iterations like we're obviously as a culture trying to work something out about about gender and power um and so i think that's a that's another one that i think i think about a lot um is that that relationship Ooh, well yeah thanks thanks for sharing that one and and you're right this is one of the things that just seems to always come up as i'm thinking about right this this kind of uh, this this genre or these kinds of connections between characters, right? It's always this kind of like struggle between power, right? How do these power dynamics sort of play out? Um, yeah, Megan, you know what? Um, always, as I said, it's so much fun. And I could continue and we could continue to go on and on, but I'm going to stop now and say, I hope that uh, you will accept the invitation and come back again. And we yes. can talk, we can talk, we can find something else of popular culture, right? And gender and coming of age or what, where, whatever wormhole we might go down together um, and have another conversation. I'm all for it. I can't wait. I, we, you know, we, I, the future, we need to make plans for the future. So I'm sure we have one. Right? <laughs> We will. We will. Well, Megan, until next time, thanks so much. And um, hopefully we'll talk again soon.